the state of Tennessee is one of the few places where the sounds are just as breathtaking as the sights. Whether that's live music at an historic music venue, the crack of an open fire at a campsite in the wilderness, or hearing kids laugh as they explore what's right around the bend, Tennessee just sounds perfect. Start planning your trip at tnvacation.com. Tennessee sounds perfect. This is the story of how a group of people brought music back to Afghanistan by creating their own version of American Idol. The joy they brought to the nation. You're free completely. No one is there to destroy you. The danger they endured. They said my head should be cut off. I'm John Legend. Listen to Afghan Star on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Ridiculous History is a production of iHeartRadio. Welcome back to the show, Ridiculous Historians. Thank you, as always, so much for tuning in. If you are hearing this the day it comes out here in these United States, then happy Thanksgiving to you, Super Producer Max. (laughs) To you, Noel, and I I guess to me, it's weird to say happy Thanksgiving to yourself. Gobble, gobble, Thanksgiving. (laughs) Gobble, gobble, Max. Gobble, gobble, gobble. Who likes, uh, you you guys turkey boys? Like turkeys? Turkey? Uh, I have a complicated relationship with turkeys. They're one of the few birds that I don't get on with. One of the few animals I don't get on with, as a matter of fact. We talked about it both on Stuff They Want You Know and Ridiculous History. They can be monstrous. They're aggressive. It's true. But also, like, I don't know. Has anyone ever really attempted to to have a, a domesticated pet turkey with a little leash, perhaps? Put a little collar on it? You know it's been done. Yeah. You know someone's tried it. I'm sure it's been done. Statistically likely, but uh, seemingly uh, bad form, um, but yet somehow okay to, to slaughter these uh, these big uh, beefy boys and populate our Thanksgiving tables with them. Remember the whole, of course you remember, it still goes on, the whole pardoning of the turkey thing? Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's an interesting uh, uh, tradition, don't you think? Are you guys Rick and Morty fans? Yes. Yeah. Have you guys seen the uh, episode of Rick and Morty where Rick turns himself into a turkey so he can get a pardon from the president? I have, yeah. I've seen <laughs> every episode. Yeah, it's it's worth it, especially if you're a Rick and Morty fan. That's the episode to revisit today. In fact, we're uh, we're friends with Dan Harmon. Uh, we've been on his show, Harmon Town, and he's come over to our show, Stuff They Don't Want You to Know. That was a roller coaster of a conversation, and it went in unexpected places. In that spirit, This episode, which is a holiday episode, is not going to talk about some of the things you might expect from a Thanksgiving episode of a history show. We're not going to talk about, you know, turkey pardoning uh, too much because we we all know that story. Uh, You've probably heard the history of Thanksgiving, either the real version or the sanitized version, countless times growing up in the States. Instead, we decided to uh, look at this through the angle of one of our favorite things in all of history, food. Uh, and this is something that is close to you, regardless of what you eat, where you live, or even if, you, if you've if you never eaten turkey for some reason, this still affects you. No, we're talking about TV dinners, popularly known as microwave meals. 
Right. Yeah, I love that TV dinner. I guess any dinner can technically be consumed in front of the TV. The idea here being it is self-contained, comes with its own, you know, throwaway receptacle. Um, so, you know, you know, all you have to do is uh, supply a fork, perhaps a knife if you, if you need to, and then, you know, rinse and repeat and enjoy your stories. Yeah, you don't really need any extra stuff. Don't need any condiments. I mean, you know, I, I personally like to zhuzh up a TV dinner a little bit, uh, add a little bit of extra spice, perhaps a little Worcestershire sauce. I don't know. Who knows? It, whatever it might be. Um, but some people, this is literally the thing they fear the most is having to overthink cooking or meal prep, you know? So leave it to the professionals. And oh, we know all TV dinners aren't created equal, but it really did come down to kind of an interesting backstory. These frozen pre-cooked, pre-proportioned, you know, MREs of consumer culture, essentially meals ready to eat, uh, you know, a military thing, Ben, and you've collected some of these in the past, haven't you? Yeah, yeah. I have, again, um, for <laughs> for the size of my pantry, I have way too much food because I'm still an Eagle Scout and feel like I have to be cartoonishly prepared for things. So I have MREs from France, Russia, and the U.S., I also, you know, I don't have as many microwave meals as usual because I really like to cook. I know you do too, Noel. And this is where our research associate for today, Max Williams, decided to start off with a hot take by saying cooking is dumb. Sir, I take exception, though I uh, respect your right to disagree. That is the perspective of the, uh, the poor cooksmith. I would argue. No game. No game in the kitchen. I mean, sorry, I got a busy life, unlike y'all, so hey now. I, I don't really have time to cook. I, I'm out here being fancy, so you know what? I listen wait, to... Wait, you're, I'm sorry, you're being fancy mm-hmm. with your microwave meals? With this hungry man. Yeah, yeah okay. man, with a hungry right. man. With and your stuff. stovers. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> you, know, you know, the... Uh, well, my personal favorite is, you know, the dinosaur chicken nuggets. Oh, you know, yeah. I love those. Yeah, they're a banger, for sure. Yeah, they taste better when they're shaped like things. And you can have little adventures with them. Mm-hmm. Put them in your mashed potatoes. Make a little volcano mountain out yeah. of it. I like, to right. do a, uh, I like to do a recreation of the great extinction of the dinosaurs, you know, mm-hmm. by dipping some stuff and then like to sort of throw them in the <sighs> air and then catch them with yeah. my mouth. I'm an adult. I can vote. You know what I mean? Something should well, be done. No, 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 no. Part of the beauty of being an adult is you can do whatever the hell you want. You that can play true. with your food on the regular. Uh, and and, we, and we, we take advantage of, of our adult status uh, in these ridiculous ways uh, pretty regularly. But the backstory that I wasn't aware of is, is that like a lot of interesting advancements in technology, and let's not lie, freezing and uh, in refrigeration is technology, uh, even in its earliest days. It is a form of technology, even without electrical components. Oftentimes, innovations come from mistakes uh, that then lead to solutions. Then you realize the mistake or when you used the thing wrong or, you know, it malfunctioned, it actually created a new uh, and desired effect. Such is the case with the Swanson's uh, Food Corporation. Yeah, this is good. This is a beautiful point, and I'm glad we're making it early on. The microwave itself is the result of a mistake, an accidental discovery. Percy Spencer was a guy working for Raytheon back in the day in the 1940s, 1945, I think. And he realized a radar set he was working on had melted a good bar, a Mr. Good Bar candy bar he had in his pocket. 
that mistake, that love of Mr. Goodbar is what led to the microwave. And uh, years back, uh, I used to write a show for How Stuff Works called Stuff of Genius, kid show about inventors. And that's how I learned that Clarence Birdseye was the pioneer for uh, the freezing methods you're talking about, Noel. If you look at it, the groundwork for TV dinners really starts back in 1925 when Birdseye figures out this method for freezing fish. And he learned this from Native people, from First Nations folks in Canada who had been preserving food due to the hostile environment for thousands of years. And we know that people have been eating frozen meat before in the United States, but it wasn't really popular because it didn't taste that great. You could definitely tell something had been frozen. They had weird textures. They didn't taste as nice. Birdseye changed that with flash freezing technology. Yeah, no, none of that freezer burn or weird kind of pockets of inconsistent freezing. You know, it's all about the timing, right? It's a bit, flash freezing freezes everything the same temperature, same time, all in one kind of like, you know, caveman style ice block, right? And then therefore when it when it defrosts or microwaves, everything theoretically reheats at the same temperature. And as you know, sometimes there are microwave meals that have instructions about uh, stirring and then continuing to microwave and all of that. And that's usually just to encourage that even heating. But this was absolutely revolutionary because now these things were palatable and it prevented some of these uh, issues that came along with slow freezing uh, things like meat and poultry, which would actually cause them to lose their flavor. And the texture would be weird too, right? Yeah, exactly. And there's a lot to Birdseye's story. I think we we, we should spend some time on it. Birdseye might, might be a recognizable brand to a lot of our fellow ridiculous historians today. Still around? Those freeze, the boil and bag corn and, you know, whatever mm -hmm. it might be. Um, lots of frozen vegetables still come from the Birdseye company. Yep, yep. And Birdseye, turns out, is a Brooklyn cat. He's born in Brooklyn, uh, and he was always interested in the natural sciences. He went to Amherst College in 1906, where for two years he studied biology until he ran out of money, unfortunately. So he went to the labor market. He works for the U.S. Department of Agriculture, and he travels around. He's in New Mexico. He's in Arizona. In 1912, he makes it up to Canada. He takes on a new profession. He becomes a fur trader, and he does this, you know, on and off for about, uh, let's say, five years. And while he's going around Labrador in Canada, he says, oh, look, people freeze food in the winter because they can't get fresh food during that season. So how do they fix it? And when he sees what they've been doing, when he sees what they've learned again over thousands of years, he says, huh, maybe I can take these ancient techniques and apply them to the modern day. So he gets back to the States and he starts experimenting this leads to him founding General Seafoods Company in 1924. And uh, I think it's not too long after, uh, it's 1929, when he starts selling this stuff. And this is what makes the bird's eye family fortune. His most successful thing is like big innovation was that rapid freezing knoll where they take packaged food. They have two refrigerated metal plates and they flash freeze it. He didn't make the first frozen food sold in stores, but his was so efficient 
and kept things so flavorful that it clearly dominated the market like right after it came out. So is that proprietary technology, Ben? Like at this point, is this the only game in town, do you think? Or is this something that is that can then be kind of repurposed by other companies? That's a good question. So he does get patents for this stuff, but eventually, in also in 1929, he sells his patents for $22 million to Ooh. Goldman Sachs in the and the Postum Serial Company. They are uh, not a name you would hear these days. It's not a story the Jedi will tell you, but this eventually led to the formation of General Foods. Did you say Postum Cereal Company? P-O-S-T-U-M, Postum. So, but is, didn't, did they shorten that to Post eventually? They did. It became Post Consumer Brands. That's what it is now. Things like Golden Crisp or Raisin Bran, they they really they really uh, they really lean into the post logo on the boxes of some of these uh, Raisin Bran in particular, and the just absolutely uh, absurdly titled Grape Nuts, yeah, which contains neither grape nor, nor nuts. nuts. Also, uh, I'm, I might make some enemies here, folks, but since we're in a safe space and we're all friends, I'll just say it. I don't like Raisin Bran. You know, when they're like two scoops, it's just like yeah. an extra scoop of poop for me. One scoop was, yeah. was, was too much already. Raisins are failed grapes. They're grapes that dropped out. You know what I mean? I agree. They gave up on life, man. Yeah. Uh, my girlfriend really loves Raisin Bran, but I am with you. That is a trash cereal. As is grape nuts and shredded wheat. Uh, these are all legacy cereals, and I'm sure there's a place for them in many people's pants. Malto meal. Sure. Good, senior, like, hot senior home centers. You know, <laughs> that's the main market. But do you remember the OG shredded wheat, you guys? It was just like it was huge. giant mm-hmm. blocks of shred of wheat. Yeah. And then, you know, mini wheats became more of the thing. But I think you can still buy the ones that just have shredded like four giant yeah. freaking bricks of wheat shreds. Yeah. Max, what's on your mind? So um, we're talking about all this like old school gross cereal. And like, that's like all my dad eats. He's obsessed with this kind of stuff. And like... I remember when like the pandemic was first taken off, there was, I guess, a shortage of grape nuts, which I wouldn't have known. I don't think y'all would have known, but we had like a group thread and my dad's like, yeah, it's really hard. Like they're trying to charge me like $36 for a box of grape nuts what? on Amazon. And it's like, why don't you just not eat grape nuts? It's like, what, what would I do without grape nuts? And it's like, eat anything else. Save $36 a box is what you would do. Uh, <laughs> it actually says, though, on the page on post, despite its name, grape nuts do not contain grapes nor nuts. Legends state that the CW Post believed glucose, what he referred to as grape sugar, formed during the baking process. Oh, boy. Well, you can't win them all. Uh, uh, <laughs> this, uh. this, And also let us know what your favorite and least favorite cereals are. We probably should do an episode on cereal in the future. but I think so. But we're getting to the Thanksgiving part because this is the story. Microwave dinners are the story of a series of weird accidents and discoveries and mistakes. Just for the record, this 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 bird's eye stuff, these are not microwave dinners. These are no. frozen, you know, frozen foods. Right. Preserved frozen corn, frozen vegetables, frozen meats, but not all put together into one one deal. Yeah, yeah, not yet, but we have to know about that technology to understand what led to TV dinners today. As we see, war drives a lot of human innovation in addition to making so much tragedy and atrocity. World War II accelerated 
medical technology, World War II accelerated packaging technology, supply chain logistics, and it accelerated the popularity of frozen food. People started acquiring the bird's eye process. Folks like Maxon Food Systems, Inc. in 1944, they used this flash freezing technology to create frozen prepackaged dinners, but they were just for civilian air carriers and the military. They had a cool name too. I like this name, Stratoplates or Skyplates. It's the me- the the meals of the future mm-hmm. of the air, you know. They should have yeah. called mashed potatoes cloud potatoes. Like I can uh, think yeah, of all these exactly. different names. I love it. No, it's really smart. Uh, good branding, unnecessary kind of because it's not really public facing. <laughs> it sort of seems a little bit wasted. But yeah, this is this is essentially frozen MREs. MREs, by the way, you know, I'm not to beat a dead horse here, but they are. Dry. They, they are not, they don't need to be heated. Isn't that right, Ben? Or like they're, they're freeze dried in some sense, where they don't need to be, they're like preserved in kind of like an airtight packaging, but they're not frozen. Yeah, they're vacuum sealed. They're not frozen and they're supposed to have a, they, they have a wide temperature tolerance. It will impact how long they last, but if you have them stored in a, in a cool, dry place, uh, they can keep for a long time. Uh, for anybody who has, let me put this diplomatically, been in a situation where you ate MREs for a while, you may know the most popular urban legend about them, which is that they can give you constipation. No comment either way, but would love to hear your war stories about it. Noel, you are correct. One thing you will need that an MRE doesn't include is water. So a lot of the drink packets are going to be powdered and you add water to them, but you don't have to heat this stuff to eat it, which can be key if you're in a um, an active situation. Right. Probably, you know, we like a hot meal. There are certain meals. I'm no stranger to eating cold leftovers, you know, usually a little bit drunk in the middle of the night, not going to lie. But they definitely have a different, they hit different than when they're warm. We as humans tend to like certain things that we expect to be hot to be hot. Unless we're talking cold pizza. Day after pizza is really good. And it's due to the chemical reactions between the bread, the cheese, and the tomato. God, we're fun at parties. But (laughs) yeah, big time. (laughs) So we've got the strato plates, we've got the sky plates. And the interesting thing is these planes, this is almost like a, marketing ploy by the Maxon company in a weird way, because along with these, you know, these meals, Maxon is also installing their line of whirlwind electric ovens, which is a precursor to convection ovens. W.L. Maxon, you know, was, was the founder of this company. And this was sort of a stroke of genius on his part to get these things to get in with kind of the military, right? This, unfortunately, his plan to expand the Stratoplates idea to a larger, you know, more consumer-facing audience died along with the man. Mm-hmm. But it, it, it opened the door for others to, to jump into this kind of burgeoning new, uh, new food space. Mm-hmm. And we remember Maxon's efforts because he did, he did place an important brick in the pavement toward, uh, toward your grocery store today. So... In 1947, there's this other guy named Jack Fisher, and he also wants to get in the frozen food business. And like Maxon before him, he wants to aim for a specific demographic, a specific slice of 
customerhood, customertude. Uh, we're just making up words. It's fine. It's American English. Uh, he has these things that are frozen meals. They're in aluminum trays, and he calls them friggy dinners, like frigidaire dash dinner. And he said, look, I'm not going to sell these necessarily in grocery stores. I got a business to business model and my business sells exclusively to bars, basically bars that, and not just every bar, bars that want to feed hungry customers. So they keep consuming booze, but also bars that don't want to spend the scratch to hire a cook or build a kitchen. So he's, that's what he's doing. You could call them lazy bars. Maybe they just didn't have the real estate behind the bar to have a kitchen. So he's selling these things and uh, he meets with some success, but frozen dinners are still not something you see in the average U.S. household because history is still waiting for one big, great mistake. And this great mistake, folks, is all about Thanksgiving and it's all about turkey. About to talk turkey, huh? Talk talk a little Turk. It's worth it. Let's get Turkish. Gobble, gobble it up. So yeah, this the Albert and uh, Meyer Bernstein um, were two brothers who, in 1949, founded the Frozen Dinners Incorporated under a, a label that I love because it it, 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 it kind of didn't age well. No. But I do I do get an image with the one eyed Eskimo. I imagine he's winking in some to, to some degree, probably sort of like a big blocky logo, cartoonish looking fellow. Uh, but yeah, we 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 uh, <laughs> we can't really culturally co-op things like that for the purposes of slinging our microwave meals for the better. I would add, they began selling a product in Pittsburgh. This was very regional in 1949 selling these frozen dinners. By around 1950, the company had produced more than 400,000 of these meals. And that is when they formed the Quaker State Food Corporation and started to look into creating an expanded distribution network around the east uh, eastern part of the United States. By then, it had sold more than 2 million prepackaged frozen meals. It's really taken off. Around that time, a company that we referenced at the top of the show, uh, a Nebraska-based company called C.A. Swanson and Sons, which is a you know very popular food brand already known for its frozen chicken and turkey uh, and also chicken pot pies, um, they decided and were kind of the uh, impetus for taking this concept national. Because at this point, you have some kind of like little, you know, factions, little regional factions that are, really have their own territories. But it was because, again, as a reference to the top of the show, of a mistake, a very particularly badly timed mistake happening around the Thanksgiving holidays mm -hmm. in 1953. Yeah, yeah, and a little bit of context. Gobble, gobble. Gobble, gobble, indeed, Max, and a little bit of context here. So the frozen food industry, as we've outlined, is already really taking off, and, and part of that is due to the demand of labor in World War II. A lot of, uh, you know, there was still very much a glass ceiling for women, right, in the workforce, and when more men were taken off to war, more women became started working, right? And this limited the amount of time they could spend preparing meals as they would have done in decades prior. So after World War II closes, there's this post-World War II 
economic boom. You know, for some people, it's like the golden years, right? 2.5 kids, you could buy a car, everybody's buying a house. Everybody has money, no one has time, right? At least that's the rose-colored, sanitized version of history. And so Swanson is doing something a lot of food companies and manufacturers in general have to do in the modern day. They're gambling a little. They're taking their past sales estimates and they're doing the math and they're saying, okay, we're going to buy this many, you know, of this many widgets or this many gallons or tons of something, right? And in 1953, the Swansons, They make the wrong move at the casino of food manufacturing. Sales of turkeys for Thanksgiving are stupid low. And all of a sudden, Swanson, which is a powerful company, as you said, they find themselves with no less than 520,000 pounds of leftover turkey. Yeah, if you've ever dealt with leftover turkey at a family Thanksgiving, you can imagine the problem. This could sink their company. This is a lot of turkey. And, you know, people might have turkey fatigue. They might not want to all of a sudden buy a bird, even if it's on a discount. Well, isn't that funny? I mean, turkey really is kind of a seasonal bird in terms of like, you know, typically year-round chicken is is more popular. But turkey, I don't know, because of marketing or history or tradition or whatever, typically is something that you really buy and stock up on around the holidays. So they miscalculated, like you said, grossly and ended up with 520,000 pounds of frozen product that will not last forever, obviously, and also as a narrowing window of interest, right, in terms of, like, when this bird is appropriate to serve. You know, I think turkey's good. I like turkey stuff. I'll get, like, a turkey pot pie or jerk turkey. You know, there's definitely places here in Atlanta where you can get, like, really good turkey meatloaf. I like ground turkey in in spaghetti. I like the turkey leg at the Renaissance uh, Festival. That's, That's awesome. Also, I mean... You know, I think a lot of times when people are anti-turkey, it's because they haven't had it properly cooked. It is a bird that can dry out. And that's, you know, that's the bane of many a Thanksgiving gathering. But also health, uh, people who are into the health food world love turkey, right? Turkey bacon, if you don't eat pork, that kind of stuff. Turkey's often used as alternatives. I had a turkey filly one time, which was Really good. I still think about it. I had a dream about it. That's how you know it's good. Yeah. Dream sandwiches. I love that. Take me there. But, you know, again, like this, this requires some innovation, right? So the company essentially had to like think fast and, and, and basically invent something that they could sell successfully to the American public. Yeah. That would be year round, not seasonal, not holiday themed. uh, And that would also keep. This episode of Ridiculous History is brought to you by Snagajob. Snagajob is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snagajob is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs on demand, tempt to hire, part-time, or full-time. You name the position, warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snag a Job's got a worker for that. 
With their easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. Visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. This episode of Ridiculous History is brought to you by Mint Mobile. You know, Ben, I got to say, one of the best parts about spring cleaning is that post-clean clarity you get where you're like, man, how have I been living like this? What's wrong with me? <laughs> you're right, Noel. It's, it's kind of like when you find out you've been paying a fortune for wireless when Mint Mobile has phone plans for 15 bucks a month when you purchase a three-month plan. It's time to switch to Mint Mobile and get unlimited talk, text, and data for 15 bucks a month. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, go to mintmobile.com slash ridiculous. That's mintmobile.com slash ridiculous. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash ridiculous. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. <laughs> they, had, they had an expensive ticking clock, too. This is like a, um, oh gosh, this is almost like a, a Mr. Show situation or a, a Christopher Guest film. So they dropped the ball on, or they dropped the bird, I should say, on uh, overbuying turkey, and they didn't want it to thaw and go bad. So what they did instead was they got 10 refrigerated railway cars, kind of like the stuff you would see on, on, sure. on the rails today. And they knew the refrigeration for these cars only worked when the train was moving. So they shuttled trains back and forth. This is a true story from Nebraska to the East Coast. Just boom to the East Coast, boom to Nebraska, just a, in a desperate bid to an expensive bid to keep this stuff frozen while the executives were sitting there in the boardroom going, oh, come on, come on. Uh, well, let's not forget too, that had to, that couldn't have been a, a, an inexpensive proposition. That's what I'm saying. Just it's burning coal. Mm -hmm. Yeah, man. Serious ticking clock. Uh, and then like, again, sort of like with the scotch tape situation, you had kind of a junior salesperson or like, you know, a junior, yeah, salesman, uh, a guy named Jerry Thomas, who remembered seeing these like aluminum trays in distribution warehouses that he visited in Pittsburgh. These were the same kinds of trays that you'd see stacked in those kind of racks, like on airplanes sure. for, you know, in the old, the old days of sort of like uh, Pan Am, uh, early airline food kind of situations. And he uh, just kind of, you know, planted this seed with the uh, Swanson exhibit. Sex. And what if we, you know, package this all together with like a, like a meal, you mm -hmm. know, with complete with with stuffing and, and, and peas and uh, sweet potatoes and all of that stuff? Yeah, yeah, they did. And they did something smart. So remember, we talked about turkey fatigue. That's what I like to call it. It's a real problem, you know. They knew it would be the wrong move to try to say, hey, wasn't last Thanksgiving where you got stressed out with your family? Wasn't that awesome? Don't you want to relive that? They knew that was a dumb idea. So they tapped into the zeitgeist of another invention sweeping the nation, television. Uh, right. That same year, they sold more than 25 million 
instances of this product by not calling it whoops, too much turkey. Instead, they called it TV dinners. For 98 cents a package, you could get this thing that was like, now it was part of your TV viewing experience. Hey, honey, you don't have to slave away in the kitchen. Sit down with us and let's see what's on the quiz broadcast or whatever. Yeah, it's a a futurist concept, right? So which which, which, so is microwaves. Now we think of microwaves as sort of like a last resort, you know? I mean, microwave dinners are fine, but like they're you know, not nearly as good as like a home cooked meal or even like reheating leftovers on the stove. There's something about, I mean, you know, it's come a long way, but I would also say, Ben, you could probably credit this with, with single-handedly creating the TV tray industry. Oh, it definitely goes to that level. Now there have been people who were eating on trays by a radio or something beforehand, but Fair this, enough. but they, no, they, but they I rebranded. think you something. <laughs> yeah. I think you're onto something. And this origin story about our guy, Thomas is sometimes debated and sometimes people will say you you should give a lot more credit to Thomas's bosses. The company itself credits Gilbert and Clark Swanson with dreaming up that iconic three-part plate and the TV name. And you know, you'll hear stories that Swans that Gilbert Swanson in particular was inspired by an airline food tray while flying to meet his banker, but there's this other thing, you know, there's so many things. This is an urban legend now, right? There's the, also the idea that Gilbert thought of the name TV Dinner because he had people over for a party and everybody's watching the TV, but folks were balancing the trays on their laps or balancing plates of food. So, you know, take it as you may. Someone at Swanson came up with it. I tend to be a fan of the underdog and the common man, so I'm going to go Team Thomas on this. It just seems a little convenient for the official Swanson company to say, oh, our fearless leaders came up with it. But if that's the truth, that's the truth. Thumbs down from Matt. company line. It's yeah, a company line. It might be a I company get it. line. Uh, but, but but even just the circumstances surrounding it are bonkers. You know, the idea of like this ticking clock, like, I, you know, as, as, as dull as the, uh, the invention of TV dinners might sound as the subject for like a biopic, I could see this part being kind of tense. In oh, a hundred, hundred percent. Yeah. I mean, this is like, again, this is another great opportunity for ridiculous history studios and the extended ridiculous history universe. We would make an awesome awesome feature on this. And we can say that with certitude because we know there's more to the story. So these are TV dinners, but astute listeners, you'll notice the timeline of this stuff and the timeline of the microwave, they don't line up. The TV dinner makes it into the American household before the microwave. What, What you needed to do was pop this in an oven and wait 25 minutes, which doesn't maybe sound super convenient for a lot of people these days, right? You can still see this as a uh, preparation instruction on chicken pot pies, right? You can put it in the microwave for what, eight to 12 minutes or something, or- oh, it's better in the oven. It's always it's better cr- It's in the crispier. Oven. Mm-hmm. A thing like a, with a crust like that, right. that is essentially uncooked pastry dough. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. You want, in, the, in the microwave, it's going to be soggy and- not as good. Or you can put it in the oven for, you know, 30 something minutes. And a lot of people, no judgment, a lot of people want to save the time and they just settle for something that tastes a little less crispy. I think it was this Smithsonian article that you found, Max, that had one of my favorite facts from Covey Bayakolo, who we've mentioned on the show before, a brief history of the TV dinner. Covey points out that 
some people were writing angry letters to Swanson because TV dinners got so popular. They were saying, hey, Swanson Brothers, you know, uh, I can't even get any home-cooked meals in my house anymore. It's all, all these TV dinners. I'm sick of the turkey. Or something like that. We're paraphrasing. Also, uh, you're going really nice by saying some people and not just saying <laughs> men. Right. Angry, angry, angry dudes. Maybe some proto-incels in the basement. And no, we didn't mention that uh, the, <laughs> the packaging of these things was designed to look like mini televisions with little tuning knobs. Uh, so I think that That's I think fun. that was cool. Yeah. Uh, so they they hit uh, grocery stores, right? September 10th, 1953, huge success. By that same time next year, they have sold 10 million units. The year after that, 1955, they've sold 25 million. And people loved it. They also expanded, right? It wasn't always just Turkey. After they saved themselves from the, the great Turkey crisis, <laughs> they, they started going into uh, Salisbury Steak, pot roast, things like that. You know, I ate Salisbury steak as a kid, both homemade and and TV dinners. And I remember really liking it when I was quite young until I had my first actual steak. And, you know, oh, it, yeah. it was like a meat of the gods, straw of the fools situation. Totally, I felt so built. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Salisbury steak is kind of like it pales in comparison to just the texture and the flavor of, of of a real piece of steak, but it's more like meatloaf, really. It's really kind yeah. of more of a meat product. It's a, patty. a ground beef patty, yeah, like a McRib or situation. like ham- hamburgu in Japan. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, but the sauce is good. Anyway, people like sauce this. is good. Yes, yeah, sauce is great. Other companies, you know, similar to uh, what happened with Bird's Eye, like we were saying, other companies like Stouffer's and then Banquet. Oh, we forgot about Banquet. They got into the game. This became a huge business for food manufacturers. It was a synergistic effect, too. It's like TV wanted to promote this, too, right, because of (laughs) the association with their medium. You started getting all these celebrity tie-ins, essentially, and, you know, it being shilled on I Love Lucy and Gunsmoke and all that stuff. In the same way that now we have, you know, all these TV and movie tie-ins with, like, cereals and silly products like that. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, you make an excellent point there because, think about it, if you're manufacturing TV, so you're making programs for television, then you want people watching, right? So now if you can sort of infiltrate their traditional mealtime and say, hey, instead of sitting around at the kitchen table eating and talking about your day, tune into Gunsmoke or I Love Lucy or what have you and eat TV dinners while you do it. This became a symbiotic relationship between the two industries and a quite successful one because no one really could have predicted this Television was a massive hit and very quickly. Oh, yeah. It didn't take long to uh, catch on. I want to shout out, by the way, Philo Farnsworth, another stuff a genius guy. Philo Farnsworth invents the concept of television when he's like 14 as a farm boy. He's plowing across a field line by line and he thinks, huh, what if I could send images this way, line by line, the way that I'm plowing this field? That sounds crazy, but it's true. And it lets you know how far the minds can wander when you have to do work like that. So shout out to Philo. Okay, I yield my time. 
No, it's fine. No, it's very, very fascinating, and it's, it's it really, really is that kind of outside of the the box thinking that um, that creates the most bizarre and incredible innovations of of humanity. Really, so I have a question for you, uh, and and you, Ben, and you, Max. What credit is due to the brainstorming underling that happens upon a genius idea? And then the company takes it and runs with it. Do you mean is legally owed? or ethically? Yeah, no, no, not legally, maybe uh, morally, let's say. Okay. Like, is is he owed a stake in the company? You know, is, you know, I mean, that's, I, I really am asking, seriously, I'm not being cynical about it. Like, he, he you know, he, he claims this guy, he was given $1,000 in 1950s bucks, which would be probably more like $100,000, right? Today, roughly, I'm guessing. Mm-hmm. And a promotion, a, a, re- a relatively vague promotion, but it's like, you know, it was it was brainstorming time. The guy opened his mouth, he had an idea, and then it was executed by the company, and, and they had the product to do it. Like, are they stealing this guy's idea? Well, is it parallel thinking? Would somebody else have come up with it anyway? Like, what is a truly unique idea, and what is owed to the person that, like, spits it out into existence? Well, I I have some thoughts on that. Uh, First off, in any large organization, unfortunately, what tends to happen is if it's a good idea, all of a sudden everybody had some sort of contribution, whether or not that's the case. And it's an unfortunate reality of how self-centered people can be. Now, as far as whether this is a unique innovation, I think it's fair to point out that um, while, while our boy, Mr. Thomas, may not have been the only person to think of this thing, he was, Swanson was one of the few organizations that had 520,000 pounds of turkey to bring to bear, right? So it's no longer mm-hmm. just a conversation. I, some, you know, we've got a lot of, a lot of folks working in the tech industry or consulting or engineers uh, who are fellow ridiculous historians. And often companies require you to sign some sort of agreement that says anything made with company equipment or on company time belongs to the company. So you can run into stuff like that. Ethically, however, and it's just my opinion, ethically, I am a huge believer in giving people credit where it's due for what they have done. I think it's incredibly important. Increditably important. Oh, oh, swing and a miss. But, uh, But it is a good question, though. It is a good question. Well, let's just, I, I, I think I'm with you on all of those points. I just think, you know, in the heat of the moment, it is interesting where, you know, like someone doesn't have the bargaining power, let's say, mm-hmm. from their position to ensure that their idea pays them dividends for like the rest of their life, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and then I know like, so people who have pet peeves, everybody has a few pet peeves, people who have a lot tend to be pretty chill about them. People who have only a few tend to get a little zealous about them. And uh, I know I'm preaching in the choir here for a lot of us tuning in, but one of my pet peeves, for instance, is hearing an idea or concept that I made told back to me as though it was not my idea in the first place. And that is something, you know, that's something that people encounter in the corporate world all the time. So shout out to everybody. I think on behalf of the show, we can say this. Shout out to everybody who feels like you have been in a situation where you come up with a banger idea and all of a sudden your bosses say, hey, I've got an idea. 
Oh, it's like that high on pot news sketch exactly. from Key Just and Peele. So. You know, I mean, like, it's all about who says a lot. And this also happens not to get on, on a soapbox here, but with sexism, like with, with, with women, for example, maybe who have an idea, but they don't say it forcefully enough or it's or they're just not a man. <laughs> and therefore, when a man repeats it, you know, or the boss and then makes it their own, then it gets the attention that it maybe didn't get when somebody who maybe is viewed in a company culture as less than um, put it out there. So, yeah. But uh, with this, oh, here's a way we can segue back. So Philo Farnsworth, weird story. Speaking of credit, Philo Farnsworth only makes one appearance on television in the entirety of his life. And he's on this show where you have to guess why someone is famous or what, what makes them a notable figure. And he was on this show called I've Got a Secret. And they tried to guess his secret. And, you know, he answers these questions from this panel. And his secret was, I invented electric television. No one could guess it. And so he won the game. And his prize was $80 and a carton of Winston cigarettes. Nice. So <laughs> good job, Philo. But uh, but that uh, that happens in 57. And television sweeps the world before then. In 1950, less than 10% of people had television sets. But by 1955, more than 64% of U.S. households had TVs. By 1960, more than 87%. That's that's a rise uh, so precipitous that it outdoes the cellular phone. It's nearly 100% adoption, which is probably close to that today. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, I mean, there's definitely, you know, obviously there can be a backlash against that. And there are, of course, cord cutters. But even now, the TV manufacturers have figured out how to, you know, in- integrate TVs into cable-less homes, like with smart TVs and apps and all of that stuff. So I would argue that number probably is very close to the same today, if not a little bit higher. Oh, yeah, it's it's probably higher. I mean, you know, we're cord cutter generation over here. So a lot of people, you might not, a lot of people are getting rid of cable, but you probably do have a TV in your home for games you like to play or you have it connected to a computer, right? Or you could say you don't need a television because your computer monitor does all the things you want a TV to do. Still, still very much the same thing. Swanson is, you know, not in a vacuum here. Swanson has their finger on the pulse. They saved themselves from the great turkey crisis. They knew a good thing when they saw it. So what do they start making? TV commercials commercials for TV dinners on TV. How exhibit is that? So so they uh, they kind of pimp their uh, TV dinner ride and they also get press from celebrities like you alluded to earlier, Noel, 1962, talking to New Yorker, Barbara Streisand says, the best fried chicken I know comes with a TV dinner. And uh, it's so fun. That, that, that you couldn't write better copy than that. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Uh, and she apparently told this of her own volition to the New Yorker in 1962, because at this point, this is probably, this is innovative. So it's almost chic to be like leaning into the TV dinner craze at this point, as opposed to it becoming kind of gauche a bit later. Right. It wasn't looked at as a food for people who hated cooking or food for people who were somehow less successful, right? Right. It, It was looked at as, the food of the busy, the early adopters, right? The movers and the shakers. And now, if we fast forward, 
we see that this stuff just expanded, right? It diversified. There are, fru- there are microwave desserts aplenty. In the 60s, Swanson starts making TV breakfast, TV lunch kind of things. Campbell's gets in the game, of course, in 1973. By this point, they're Swanson's parent company, and they introduce Hungry Man, which are, you know, larger meals aimed toward, surprise, hungry dudes. And then, you know, in the 70s, we get, it starts to kind of go off the rails a little bit with like sort of tastemaker, kind of uh, poorly placed tastemaker attempts, let's just say by the Swanson's take on Polynesian style dinner, which is like completely not anything that would even resemble food you might get in Polynesia. And uh, critics take note because now this really is kind of encroaching on you know, fine foods and on like, you know, the idea of fine dining. So you have a lot of like kind of New York Times, New Yorker types who are turning their nose up at the thing now. And now it is kind of becoming more gauche and a little more like, you know, the the uh, the, the meal of, of the tasteless consumer. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because there's always a backlash in the world of arts and culture. And this is something... I used to talk about at length with our old pal and fellow ridiculous historian, Casey Pegram. There's this recursive logic, right? If something gets too popular too quickly, there's going to be someone who comes out as a contrarian, right? And they say, this is, uh, you know, the the emperor has no clothes. So, of course, people like uh, New York Times food critic back in 1977 would say, TV dinners, you know, they're basically too popular. They have, they're for people who have no taste. And this cultural critique begins, this national conversation. One newspaper out of Shrewsbury, New Jersey says, well, hey, maybe it's, maybe it's more about the value and the convenience. Sure, it's not a Michelin restaurant necessarily, but in what other way can I get a single serving of turkey, a portion of dressing, and the potatoes, vegetable, and dessert? For less than a dollar, for something like 69 cents. That's a good point. Also, people who were on diets liked it from what we read. Yeah, exactly. And then you start getting things like lean cuisine. And again, I don't know the exact history of that, but these, as an example, or Weight Watchers, because it is, uh, even today, like a lot of the really expensive subscription meal plan, you know, weight loss kind of like solutions are frozen dinners. That, that, you know, get shipped to you, like uh, in these kind of uh, refrigerated boxes or whatever. Um, so that makes sense. The whole built-in portion control. Just don't go for the, the hungry man style. But it is actually only just now, through all of this, that the biggest innovation of all kind of comes. In 1986, when the Campbell's Soup Company invents the microwave-safe tray. So up to this point, we've been, you know, 20 minutes in the oven. Now this is cutting down prep time for these things to just, you know, 12 minutes, 13, 30, less than that even, depending on the size and the, and the type of, uh, of, of dish. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is where the TV dinner becomes the microwave meal. And people are already nostalgic for the TV dinner. There was one columnist who said, progress is wonderful but I will still miss those steaming, crinkly aluminum TV trays. Uh, And uh, now, if you have been around for the past couple of years, you know that there was a global pandemic, one that continues today, despite the news moving on to different stories. 
It turns out that the COVID-19 pandemic was huge for frozen meals. People who didn't want to cook and who would usually go to a restaurant or something found that their favorite restaurants were closed to one degree or another. So people were buying nearly 50% more frozen meals in April 2020 as compared to 2019. And uh, then you saw kind of fancier stores like Williams-Sonoma stock fancy gourmet TV dinners. Oh, we didn't even talk about that part. Now, microwave meals and TV dinners have also moved into the the world of like gourmet upper echelon, Whole Foods, Trader Joe's type stuff. You can get it organic. You can get it vegan, gluten-free, all sorts of um, neat cuisines from around the world that taste pretty close in some cases to the actual traditionally cooked versions. It's it's pretty neat. Also, I didn't, I I think I saw this at one Atlanta restaurant over the past few years. They were offering frozen versions of their restaurants or uh, restaurant offerings for oh, carry out. Yeah. yeah. Did you try any of those? No, but I mean, I have noticed more of that lately with like TGI Fridays, you know, potato, loaded potato skins and oh, yeah, uh, PF new. Chang's, you know, blah, whatever, like orange chicken. But usually, it, uh, I mean, if the if the chain restaurant dish is even that good to begin with, the microwave version is probably going to pale in comparison. Yeah, yeah. And in this case, we're talking too about uh, maybe restaurants that aren't chain restaurants, but uh, have figured out how to, you know, freeze like about a that. family meal. Yeah. That's cool. That's cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, I think that's neat. There's certainly, especially certain restaurants or bakeries, say, that make like a really beloved lasagna or like a really, like a, like a family meal thing. And you can get that frozen, ready to freeze. That's great casseroles and such for soul food. And now frozen meals are here to stay. Uh, They're not all unhealthy. That's a bit of a stereotype. They're not all super fancy, obviously, but almost everybody has tried one and enjoyed it. There are all kinds of options and we owe it all We really do owe it all in part to Jerry Thomas and his solution to a massive mistake by the good folks over at Swanson. So thank you. What what do you say? That's our that's our company line here. Thanks to you, Jerry. (laughs) Yeah. And all the Jerry's of the world that don't get credit for their ideas. Yeah, go eat some frozen turkey, Swanson. <laughs> so, so yeah, we that, didn't even yeah. talk about what that Swanson money did for uh, right-wing punditry. Oh, oh we you go in there on Thanksgiving? <laughs> <laughs> can you get, so hey, many hey, people hey. are doing no, this at Thanksgiving We don't talk politics right at the Thanksgiving table. Oh, geez. You can Google it yourself, though. Google it yourself. Yeah. Well, we yeah, we'll take you to the edge of that rabbit hole or that uh, turkey, turkey roost, turkey hangout. And I was thinking, since it's a holiday and we might Guys, we might be accompanying someone right now as they're getting away from their family or as they're like washing dishes or as they're cooking and they just say, oh, don't talk to me. I'm, I, I'm listening to something very important. Uh, if you need a note from to your family from us, let us know. We got your back. And here are some things to give you a laugh, some terrible jokes. Noel, what do you call a group of featherless turkeys? Hmm. I don't know, Ben. What do you call a group of featherless turkeys? I'm so glad you asked. A cluster pluck. Uh, <laughs> oh, 
Okay, okay, just one more, just one more, right, just one more. It. I'm here for it. I'm here for it. Why did the turkey cross the road to prove he wasn't a chicken? Uh, yeah, classic, <laughs> classic format there. Classic <laughs> format. <laughs> so that's it. Wait, there's, you could also say because it was the chicken's day off. That's yeah, that's good. Though. No, that's good. Oh, I think judges will accept good. both. Yeah, this was a lot of fun. We went long, but we again we wanted to give you some time. Uh, if you if you need a little escape for these holidays, uh, hope this finds you well and in good health, good spirits. Uh, thank you so much as always for tuning in. We wish you the happiest of Thanksgivings to those who celebrate. Uh, and if you don't, well. We just made some American customs sound even weirder. And I think totally. I'm okay with that. Yeah. Oh, always. <laughs> That's what we do here at Ridiculous History. Uh, we'll see you next time, folks. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. This is the story of how a group of people brought music back to Afghanistan by creating their own version of American Idol. The joy they brought to the nation. You're free completely. No one is there to destroy you. The danger they endured. They said my head should be cut off. I'm John Legend. Listen to Afghan Star on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabby Collins. And this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday.